Good morning. I was very proud of myself for walking 100 yards over here to worship today <laughs> until I realized that we had people here from Iowa and Indiana. Well done, good and faithful servants. <laughs> Let us now attend to God's word as it comes to us from the book of Esther. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a message for Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For keep silence at such a time as this. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. The word of the Lord. Holy God, as you care for creation through the seasons, we pray that you will now care for our own soul. Give us a season of spirituality, of insight, that we might further grasp your holy calling in our lives through your word. We ask this in the name of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. The high drama of Esther is written in three different acts, like all good dramas, frankly, like the drama of our lives as well. The book of the Bible is noted for being the only book that never mentions the name of God. But God is attending to this drama. Rather than being a primary actor, it appears that God is offstage in the wings watching to see what kind of choices the actors make, what kind of choices you make in the drama of your life. Act one. Xerxes has just become the king of Persia. He's a spoiled brat who's just inherited this kingdom from his father. He's almost a cliche. He has stumbled into wealth and power and has no idea how to handle any of that. He has a tremendous appetite for luxury and for parties. He has no ability to handle uh, discomfort. His appetites are so strong, his ego strength is weak, which is always a horrible combination for leaders. He likes parties. He likes his friends. He likes beautiful women. He thinks it's all there to give him a fun time. When the story begins, Xerxes has just thrown a big party for his friends. The party lasts seven days. We're told that the drinking was out of flagons and without restraint. 
who can even do that? Seven days of drinking from flagons without restraint. I think they would all be passed out by this time. And so they're not making really good choices at this point. So Xerxes and his drunken buddies decide it's time to call for the queen, Vashti, to come in and bring her crown with her. Vashti's been paying attention to what's going on, and she knows that it's not actually the crown these drunken buddies of the king want to get their hands on. So she says, no, I don't think I'll be doing that. Well, this enrages the drunken friends of Xerxes. And they said to Xerxes, there is no end of the contempt we will each find in our own homes once it gets out that the queen has disobeyed the king. So they get the king to pass a decree that every man shall be the master of his own house. I can't even say this with a straight face. Um, you, you can't write this stuff. It's, it's already here. It's just, the king passes a law. Every man shall be the master of his own house. And by all means, get rid of Queen Vashti, which he does. Well, when Xerxes sobers up the next morning, he realizes that maybe by decree he's the master of his own house, but he's the only one in it. So his drinking buddies come up with another great idea. And this idea is to hold a beauty pageant. And whoever the winner is of the beauty pageant will be his new queen. And Xerxes, just the kind of guy who would think that this is a fabulous idea. So it's at this point that Esther comes on stage in the drama. She's the younger cousin of Mordecai. Mordecai's great-grandfather was one of the Jews who was taken in captivity from Jerusalem to the kingdom of Babylon, which then later fell to Persia. So Esther is Jewish. But she chooses not to bring this up in the interview portion of the pageant. So it's her own little secret. Of course, as the drama goes on and unfolds, Esther wins the pageant, and she's the new queen. And so this girl, who's the descendant of exiles, who was a nobody, has now become the queen of Persia. End of Act One. Act One is about the best any of us can do for our lives. We've got a story that we want to have unfold. And the story goes pretty much like Esther's does up to this point. The chips were against us, we were a nobody, we took our chances, we took advantage of the opportunities that were before us, we worked hard, and then we became somebody. And just like Esther at the end of Act One, we think that we're now to the happy ever after part. But it's just Act One. The best dreams we come up with are dreams that require us to work hard. You get a diploma, you get degrees, you get a job, you find somebody to love, maybe you have a family. Now you think it's happy ever after. You think this is the whole story. It was just act one. Then we come to act two, when you realize there's more drama in your life yet to unfold. And now you realize you're not even writing this drama. This is going in ways you had never anticipated. A very ambitious man in the kingdom of Persia named Haman 
takes advantage of the foolishness of Xerxes and gets a decree passed that any time he rides his horse along the streets, everyone should bow down before him. I'm imagining that Haman came up with lots of errands he had to run because it was so fun to go down the streets and watch everybody bow. Everybody did except Mordecai, who because of his Jewish heritage was unable to bow before any human. This infuriated Haman. Everybody else bowing, this one Jewish man standing tall. So Haman talks the silly king into passing another decree, and this decree was to extinguish the lives of all the Jews because he said they're a threat to your kingdom. Stupid King Xerxes uses his power to pass a degree to kill every Jew in the land. When Mordecai hears about this, he sends word to Esther saying, you've got to do something about this. Now there's a great threat to the life that has been carefully put together. It's not happy ever after, not anymore. At first, Esther says, I can't do anything about this. I can't even go in and see the king unless he's asked me to do. Who am I to take this on? After you get your life just right, a moment will come when you have to make a decision that will challenge everything that you've carefully put together. And your initial response will be to say, who am I to take this on? Who am I to do this? Syria? I can't do anything about Syria. Homelessness in Trenton? I, I'm just a grad student. I can barely afford my own rent. Who am I to take this on? Mordecai responds to Esther by saying, hey, don't think you're going to be spared just because of your position in the kingdom. I don't know how convincing that would have been to Esther. Frankly, she's got a pretty secure life. The king likes her. She's won the beauty pageant, after all. I mean, she could have ducked this one. She could have kept her little secret. She could have said whatever tragedy and adversity out there is just out there. I've got my little garden. I will tend it. I will take care of it. But then this other thing comes up from Mordecai, which I think she finds irresistible. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In act two of your life, you confront this great calling, this great moment, which you know makes sense of all the other moments of your life, and you're confronted with a choice, and the most heroic choice you will ever make, a choice that places everything you've worked so hard on the line. What will you do? And you know at that point that you have got to respond to this. This is the choice of your life. And so as Esther realizes she has no alternative, she says, if I perish, I perish. I have got to intercede. It's the most heroic moment of life. Then notice what happens in the story afterwards. I love this part of the story. Once Esther knows what she's called to do, she gets a plan. 
We don't know that this was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It may have just been her own thinking. It may have been she had a little committee together, a task force, and did some strategic thinking. She gets a plan, and it's a doozy of a plan. Knowing the king's affection for parties, she throws him a great party. He loves the party. He says at the end of the party, wow, this is great. What can I do for you? And she says, well, let me throw a better party. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> let's have a better party. And let's bring the Hamans over, she says, to this better party. Yeah, sure, bring them on. And then at the end of that second party, she exposes Haman's plot. And the king is furious with Haman, and he meets his demise. My point is, there's a difference in a calling and in a plan. Around here, we're big on calling, visions, dreams. Yes, those come from heaven for you. But then there's also the time to make a plan. When God has called you to do something, to take on something that's evil and horrible in the world, don't go charging the machine gun nest by yourself. Get a plan. The Holy Spirit does not have to be spontaneous. The Spirit can plan ahead. <laughs> this is why I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> It's possible to think through what you're going to do. There is a sanctified use of plans and strategies and thinking this thing through. And she's got a plan. And the plan works. And it delivers the people. And now she's thinking she's at the end of the story. But no, it's just act two. There's a third act. And in the third act, Esther decides what she will do with her success. This is when the story, it seems to me, takes a hard turn. Now that she's a very powerful woman, now that she has all the power of the king, she orders not only Haman's execution, but also the death of 75,000 people that she thinks are enemies of the Jews. Wow. I know this is ancient literature, and it's hard for contemporary people to have empathy with these kind of turns in the story. But it's really hard for us to find the Word of God at the end of Esther's drama. You kind of wonder if she couldn't have made different choices. If she could not have honored her ancestor Abraham and chosen to use the blessing she had received to be a blessing to others. You have to say, what if she had done this differently? You have to wonder if maybe this is why God chose not to have his name show up in the story at all. Maybe God just wanders away off the sidelines of the story and seeing Esther's choices at the end. This drama is being played out in our lives all the time. There's always the story that you thought was the end, then there's the crisis, and then there's the deliverance of God by grace. And then the real drama is what are you going to do with that grace you've received from God? You're always confronting Act 3 in your life. 
You thought it was getting life just right. Then there was a crisis, and God brought you through it. Then what? This is where the real heroism lies. This is where the most important choices of our life lie. In Act 3, what are you going to do with the grace of God you have received? How will you be a steward of the manifold blessings that have been poured out upon your life? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.